The reading this morning is from John, the second chapter, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the ESV. You can find it in the Pew Bibles on page 887 or in the following Jesus Bible on page 1141. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Well, if you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go over for children's worship and nursery, now would be a good time for them to go. If you're visiting here with us, I'll ask that one of you, uh, one of the parents at least, take the kiddos over there so they can fill out our little form for the children. Also, I don't think that was the ESV. John was reading from the worship guide. That sounded more like, I don't know if it's NIV or New King James, but I'll be preaching from ESV. So if you're using the worship guide for your scripture, maybe just grab a pew Bible unless the font is too small. Otherwise, you're going to be doing a double take. What, son? Okay, well, go to, go to children's worship. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody loves a wedding uh, so long as the reception is good, right? Reception's no good. Eh, it's kind of borderline. And an open bar really helps with the reception. Um, now, in New Orleans, it would be really odd if a bar got totally cleaned out at a wedding. If it happened, I don't think anybody would be offended. I think people would actually be impressed that the crowd had, had pulled off uh, that feat. But in first century Israel, guests, guests would take this as a slap in the face. In fact, there could actually be legal repercussions if your wedding reception ran out of wine. It would, it would be a great breach of social uh, protocol. So when this wedding runs out of wine... This is a big deal uh, for this family. Now, Mary seems to take it very personally as well, which indicates that this family might have been related to Mary's family, or they may have just been close friends uh, to Mary and Jesus. Um, And we could get caught up in all the details of this story, and we are going to dig into some of the details this morning because it's fascinating, both for its transcendence 
and its humanness. It's a very neat text. But what really happened? What is the important, incisive moment uh, in what happened here in Cana? Kids, I want you all to pay attention. I'm going to read a few of these verses from the ESV, mind you. I want you to pay attention as we read because I'm going to ask you guys a couple of questions about it in a second. Grown-ups, you might want to listen too because you may have to help them. So let's reread verses 6 through 11. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. So what happened at the wedding at Cana? Yes, a miracle occurred, but there's something more than that. Through this miracle, verse 11 tells us, Jesus' glory was manifested. The translation John read said his glory was revealed. Something about this sign, this thing that Jesus did, unveiled something about him. So kids, here's my question. Which characters in the story knew that Jesus had turned the water into wine? Not all the characters knew. All right, Isaac, so who's some of the characters that knew? The disciples knew. That's right, because in verse 11 says the disciples believed. So the disciples knew, but there were some other characters that knew as well. Any other kids? Joe? The servants knew. That's right. They were there precisely when Jesus did it. Here's my point. Some people saw what Jesus did and believed the disciples. Others saw what Jesus did and didn't believe. His glory was revealed and different people responded in different ways. And now we're getting to the meat of the text. If you like to take notes, you can look in the back of your worship guide. There's a little outline there with some blanks. Here's your first blank to fill in. Jesus still reveals his glory, and people still respond in different ways. Just like Jesus revealed his glory in Cana, Jesus still reveals his glory. Just like people responded in different ways then, people still respond in different ways now. So kids, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to reveal Something We've seen this idea a couple of times in the Gospel of John, and I asked the question, what does it mean to reveal something? And Madeline Fernandez answered very astutely. She said, revealing something is uncovering it. It's taking something that's hidden or secret and making it known. And that's what Jesus did. When Jesus turned water into wine, he showed us something hidden. He was telling us a secret about himself, something that people didn't previously know. So let's poll the audience. What did Jesus reveal about himself? What secrets did he unveil when he turned water into wine? What do you think? First of all, awesome. We got several responses. Harvey, what did you say? Okay, he's got some, some sense of control over, the, over what's happening here. Edgar, did you say something too? Power over nature. And Chris, what did you say? Oh, (laughs) Melissa, what's that? He was extraordinary. That's right. 
We could summarize, summarize all this up by pointing out the words of verse 11. Look again at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This miracle showed that he was extraordinary. This miracle showed that he had power over nature. This miracle showed that he had control over this situation. It says something about Jesus. So Jesus, what does this reveal? Jesus is a glorious man. He's a human. He's got flesh and blood, right? He's born of a woman. He's a human who had transformative power over the stuff of creation in a way that is over and above scientific explanation. What creature could possibly have this kind of power over creation? Well, John's already told us in chapter 1, hasn't he? Who's Jesus? Jesus is the Word who was with God in the beginning. Jesus, in fact, is God. Who is Jesus? He tells us Jesus is the Son of God who participated in creating. Nothing has been made except through Jesus. So when Jesus then turns water into wine... He's, he's, he's pulling back the veil a little bit. And people are getting a glimpse of who this human really did. Or who he really is. And here's what's wild. Jesus is still doing this today. He's still revealing his glory. He's still revealing who he is. Even though Jesus is in heaven with the Father, he is still revealing his glory on earth today. Just as powerfully as he ever has. But how? How does Jesus do this? How does he reveal his glory today? Is he still doing miracles? Or does he have some other method? Here's your next blank in your worship guide. How does he do it? First of all, he does it however he wants. (laughs) That's your next blank. For starters, he does it however he wants. That's how he reveals his glory. Look at verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary sees this family emergency unfolding within a family that she loves. So what does she do? She uses the greatest asset at her disposal, namely that her son also happens to be, I don't know, God. (laughs) So it's kind of ironic, funny, and very real to life that Mary comes up to her son and says, they have no wine. I'm not saying that Mary's passive-aggressive, but she doesn't just come out and say what she's thinking, right? It's in there, but she ain't saying it. Conveniently, as we'll see later in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually can read minds, unlike every other man in the room. (laughs) Jesus can read minds. He knows what she's thinking. And what's Mary really saying? She's saying, son, if you could wield some of your divine power to solve this problem... I'd really appreciate it. And Jesus responds to her with two powerful statements. First, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? When he calls her woman, he's not being demeaning. And when you look in the Gospel of John, every time he uses this to address a woman, it's a very tender situation. It's a woman that he cares for deeply, even a woman who's in distress. So this is not a, he's not being disrespectful to his mother But it is true that he doesn't call her mother. Why not? Well, we've been studying for the last several weeks now the first week of Jesus' ministry, 
right? John the Baptist revealed that Jesus was the Lamb of God. People are starting to, to realize that he's the Messiah. And what we're seeing here is that something has changed in this last week. At the beginning of his ministry, something has changed even relationally between him and Mary. I think when he calls her woman, what he's saying is, you may be my mother biologically, but our relationship is now different. Now that Jesus has been revealed as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, as the King of Israel, Mary is going to have to find her place as a disciple of Jesus alongside all the others. Likewise, this family whose wine bar has run out, they may have a close relationship to Jesus, but they get no prize position either. Jesus isn't a politician who gives special tax cuts and jobs to close friends and family. He doesn't work that way. He treats all of his disciples equally. So Jesus' response to Mary indicates that perhaps she does not realize that things have changed. She doesn't realize that his ministry has begun, that things are changing. His identity has now been revealed. He is known and followed by many now. Things are changing. Changing. So he means no disrespect to his mother, but Mary needs to relate to him now as her Lord. And as Lord, he doesn't play favorites. Woman, what does this have to do with me? But he follows up with a second statement and he says, My hour has not yet come. This is a phrase we're going to encounter 15 times in the Gospel of John. Jesus. Or John himself will say that uh, Jesus' hour has not yet come. They'll say that his hour is drawing near or that his hour has come. They'll talk about the disciples and their hour has not yet come. But what is all this talking about? For Jesus, the hour to which he's referring is his death on the cross. So Jesus tells Mary, in this week, not only have all my relationships been shifted, wherein you and all these folks are to treat me as Lord and and no longer as son, but my priorities have shifted too. Everything I do from here on out, says Jesus, is aimed at one thing, a cross. And so the choices I make, the, the places I go, the things I do is all aimed toward that. So I can't just come out right now. And and, and out myself as God before here and everyone because it's not time for that. My hour has not yet come. How does Mary respond? I think she responds perfectly. Her response shows that she understands Jesus. It shows that she submits to his lordship. It shows that she even agrees with his motives. Mary demonstrates that her faith is well beyond what we've seen from these other disciples. These disciples that have believed in him for a matter of days now. Mary gets Jesus on a different level. What does she say? Look again at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I used to read this and think that I was seeing a mother kind of rolling her eyes and yeah, 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 son, whatever. Do what he tells you to do, you know, assuming that he's going to do what she wants. But that's not the tone of the text. Mary responds positively to Jesus and she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. He tells you to do nothing, do nothing. He gives you money and tells you to go buy wine, go buy wine. He is the Lord. And he's going to handle the situation in the way that best aligns with his purposes. And here's how that applies to us. Jesus is still in the business of revealing his glory to people. Clearly he wanted to because he did that. He's in the business now of making himself known to people. And how does he do it? 
however he wants. He's the Lord. And he is working all things together for his glory and the good of his people. So if Jesus wants to show his glory to you or to the people that you love in simple ways and quiet ways, awesome. And if Jesus wants to reveal his power and glory in spectacle and power, great. He's the Lord. And when he reveals his glory, he does it however he wants. How else does he reveal his glory? Here's your next blank. Second, he does it in a way that is aligned with his father's revealed will, not ours. When he reveals his glory, he does it in a way that's aligned with his father's will, not necessarily ours. So Jesus may not have addressed the issue the way that Mary wanted him to, but he did it in a way that was aligned with his cross-centered mission that he received from his heavenly father. Same is true today. When Jesus reveals his glory today, he's always going to do it in a way that is consistent with his father's plan. What do I mean? What, what, What am I getting at? Walk with me now. Let's wade into these. They're not piranha-infested waters, but they're a little, a little murky. Jesus reveals himself today to people. He does it in ordinary ways, but he also does it in extraordinary ways. Now, we're good Presbyterians here at FPC. We like to do things decently in order. We have a book of order that we do everything according to. And, and most Presbyterians, if you ask them, how have you seen the glory of Jesus? How has Jesus revealed himself to you? They're going to say, I read his word and I see him. I see how beautiful he is, how good he is, and I am moved by the Christ that I meet in the scriptures. Now, if you find a charismatic Presbyterian, they might say something like this. I've seen him answer my prayers. (laughs) That for a Presbyterian is a charismatic experience of the glory of Jesus. Plenty of Presbyterians will tell you, I've seen the glory of Jesus, but it's usually in very ordinary ways. I'm totally fine with that. That's great. In fact, we consider that an ordinary means of grace. That's usually how he does stuff. How does he usually show us his glory? Scripture, prayer, worshiping together, Christian friendship, where we depend upon each other. Usually very ordinary ways that Jesus reveals his glory. But extraordinary things happen, too. They're just extraordinary. They're out of the ordinary. So I can't discount the stories I've recently heard from 2021 of people in closed countries where the gospel is not allowed having visions and dreams of Jesus. Why do I hear that and not get wigged out by that? Well, this doesn't sound very ordinary. The Book of Order doesn't have a, a section on visions Why doesn't my Western postmodern skepticism kick in and seek to explain that away? Because this is my foundation of truth. And what does God do here? He reveals himself through visions and dreams. He even promises that as the day grows near that that would happen more and more. I don't see it happening on every page, but I see it happening a healthy amount of times, right? Jesus reveals his glory in ordinary ways. He also does it in extraordinary ways, and he's given us the pattern for how he does that in the scriptures. We've witnessed literal miracles in our own church. Elders who've been elders for a while at Faith will remember. We had a church member with an inoperable tumor ask us to come pray for her and anoint her with oil. We did. She went back to the doctor next week, and the tumor was gone. And her life was extended for years. 
after that. Praise God. He revealed his glory to us. I, I remember praying for her. And the whole time I'm like, do I even believe that this is possible? And when he responded, when he revealed his glory, he said, yes, it's possible. You did what I told you to do in the book. And lo and behold, I was consistent. Many of you here, ordinary, just plain old Presbyterians, have had strange experiences of the power of God that didn't fit within your expectations but still fit within the bounds of the scriptures. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of hucksters and heretics out there that are trying to manipulate people's emotions, trying to confuse immature Christians. But at the same time, we serve an active God who wants Jesus' glory to be known. He wants the world to be filled with his praise. Jesus reveals his glory to his people however he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, always in alignment with his Father's revealed will. Not our own. He does it according to God's timing, in God's way, and according to God's plan. How else does he reveal his glory? Here's your next blank. Third, one primary way that Jesus reveals his glory is by transforming created things. He makes water into wine. Transforming created things is one primary way that Jesus reveals his glory. Let's look again at verses 6 through 10. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Kids, let me ask you a question. In the beginning, who created all things? God, that is the absolute truth. God created everything. And back in John chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus created all things with his Father. So here's something to think about. Who made water? God did. And Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus also created water alongside his Father. Jesus created water from nothing. And when he created all things, he said it was very good, right? Creating good water revealed something about God. It revealed something about God. You see, I'm I'm building an argument here. It revealed that God was good. The goodness in creation in Genesis 1 revealed something about God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God reveals his glory through creating. But now in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus also reveals his glory by transforming the things he has created. Jesus transforms that water that he made into wine, and not just plain old wine, but the best wine at the party. Think about that. So how does Jesus reveal his glory Today, why does Jesus reveal his glory today? Jesus reveals himself to you so that he might transform you. Why does he make his glory shine at Cana? Why does he make his glory shine in the scriptures? To transform you. Why does he reveal himself to you by answering your prayers? Why does he reveal himself through these ordinary and extraordinary things? Why? To transform you. 
recreate you and to make you even better than Adam. Not to make you just a plain old man, a plain old woman, a plain old boy or girl, but to make you truly human, to, to, to fix in you the things that are broken. And then through you, the transformed one, to display his glory in you and through you wherever you go. And that leads to a final thought. Fourth. Next blank. Jesus reveals his glory to people for a purpose that they would see him as he is and respond in faith. Jesus reveals his glory to people for a purpose that they would see him as he is and respond in faith. When we see the glory of Jesus through the ordinary and extraordinary means of grace, the response that he wants us to have is faith. Faith is the means by which we are transformed. Jesus reveals himself to us so that we would believe and be changed. And then we become the means of others seeing the glory of Jesus in us. I realize I'm I'm going very fast. I'm going to use a metaphor, slow it down and make you think about it. We see and taste the wine, then we become the wine. We see the glory of God revealed, we take it into us, and then we become the means of others seeing the glory of Christ. We see the wine, we taste the wine, we become the wine. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So here we are, the third Sunday in a row, talking about faith. It's almost like John the Apostle. It's almost like he has a reason that he wrote this gospel. It's almost like he's saying, this story is written so that you, reader, so that you, hearer, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. If you haven't been here for the last four weeks, that's because he says that in John chapter 20, and it's come up week after week after week. John wants you the reader of this book, to see the glory of Jesus in it and to believe. That's what Mary does here. That's what the disciples do here. They see and they believe. But there are others who see, but they don't believe. So let's think through the experience then. How has the glory of Jesus been manifested to you? How have you seen how beautiful and powerful, and good, and transformative Jesus is. How has Jesus shown his identity, his power, and his glory to you personally? Well, no doubt you've seen it through the ordinary means of grace, like in the Word, in prayer, in the sacraments, in the life of the church. Perhaps you've even experienced his glory through some extraordinary means. But what transpires in that moment, in that experience? First, here's your next blank. When Jesus' glory is revealed to us, it exposes our disordered lives. When the glory of Jesus is revealed, it exposes our disordered lives. Calvinistic theologians have used this language of disordered fairly frequently. I wish I knew who used it first. Do you know Dale? I don't know if it's Calvin or Augustine or, or, or someone else, but here's what it means. Your next blank. A disordered thing may or may not be monstrously sinful or broken. It's just not as it should be. A disordered thing isn't like a, it doesn't always have to be a grievous sin. Grievous sins are certainly disordered, but it's just saying that this thing is not as it should be. For example, if you love a good thing too much, 
that is actually sin. You've made it an idol. You've elevated that good thing higher than it should be. It's out of order in your life. There are other things that you should love more than that. Here's another. If you treat one person better than another based upon their income, their race, their social status, that's sin. That's a disorder in your love. You're elevating things higher than you ought to. Also, if a child never has a chance to learn to read, or if they don't have healthy food or clean water, that may or may not be because of sin, but it's certainly out of order. That's something that we want to fix. We want every child to have the same opportunities in as much as we have the capability. It's not necessarily a sin, though. It's just disorder. Regardless, this idea of something being disordered, I find to be a very helpful category. It's broader than sin and simply suggests that things have gotten out of whack and need to be put back into whack, (laughs) into order, I guess. They need to be put back into order. Things are not as they should be. Here's your next blank. Two regularly disordered parts of our lives are our desires and our relationships. Things we want and the things and people that we love. Two regularly disordered parts of our lives are our desires and our relationships. So Mary's desire for this bridal couple, her relationship to this family, her desires and her relationship weren't born out of any sinful intent. They were just a little off the mark. She wasn't thinking about her relationship to Jesus as Lord. She wasn't thinking about his mission the way that he was. Those things were out of whack for her. And through this scene, Jesus brings her back into alignment. Here's the straight facts about me and about you. There are things that we want that are not what Jesus wants for us. There are likely things that you are pursuing, maybe even praying for, that he doesn't want for you. Stated differently, there are things that Jesus wants for you that you aren't currently wanting. Likewise, all of us have relationships that are out of whack. And they might feel right to you. They might feel good to you. They might feel perfect to you. You may think you're doing the right thing. When in fact, they're not, they're not the way they ought to be. Regularly, this is true of the people and relationships that are nearest us. The things that are the most important to us can very easily become too important to us. When I think about you guys, the the congregation here on Bootlegger Road, if we're in danger of idolizing anything or anyone, of course, a major culprit would be money because of where we live. But perhaps another candidate, just as likely as any other, is our spouses and kids. We very easily become an idol in our life. And, of course, ourselves. (laughs) That's probably our most precious idol. Wherever you have the most emotion invested, there's a lot of potentiality that things could get disordered in your desires and in your relationships. Isn't it interesting that it's at a wedding that Mary's desires and relationships get out of order? Emotion and emotional moments get us all screwed up. But when Jesus' glory is revealed... Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, things are a little bit out of order here in your desires and your relationship. We can see the disorder when Jesus' glory shines. Here's your next blank, real long point. The glory of Jesus, rightly perceived, puts our desires and relationships under the microscope in contrast to our desire for Jesus' purposes and our relationship to Jesus as Lord. I'll say it again. 
the glory of Jesus, rightly perceived, when we see it clearly, it puts our desires and relationships under the microscope in contrast to our desire for Jesus' purposes and our relationship to Jesus as Lord. Here's a, 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 a kind of an undergirding assumption. Jesus' desires should be our number one desires, and our relationship with Jesus should trump all the rest. Our love for him, our commitment to him should be greater than all our other loves, all our other commitments. His purposes and his wants are to be above everything else. We say this regularly in worship here. Harvey said it earlier, that when we get a clear view of God, then we can actually start to get a clear view of ourselves. He is the light through which we see ourselves rightly. And when Jesus reveals his glory to us in ordinary and extraordinary ways, that's the moment when we can most easily see the disorder in our, in our lives. We can see where our desires and our relationships are out of whack. Now, this sounds unpleasant, doesn't it? That Jesus is going to show himself to you, and then he's going to expose you. (laughs) You're going to see where you're messed up and where things aren't as they ought to be. Who wants to be exposed? Who wants to be told that that thing you feel really good about, actually, you're off? You're desiring the wrong thing or in the wrong way, or that relationship is not as it should be. Notice. Mary doesn't run from Jesus screaming and crying, full of shame and just wrecked because of this interaction. Jesus is so good to us. He's so merciful and he's so patient, even as he reveals his glory. When he would be in the right to judge us and to to cast us off, instead he comes near to, to know us, to enjoy us, and to transform us. The whole scene in Cana is one of familiarity and celebration and smiles. (laughs) Jesus wants us to see his glory and to believe. And that leads to our last blank. The glory of Jesus, when received in faith, exposes and then reorders our disordered lives. The glory of Jesus, when we see it, when we perceive it, when we receive it in faith, it exposes and then reorders our disordered lives. So let me ask the question. When did you last see the glory of Jesus? When did you last experience him? It might have been this morning. Man, when I was singing at Christ, our hope in life and death, I choked up. I, I saw the glory of Jesus in that hymn in a very powerful way. Maybe it was this morning as John was reading our text. Maybe it's been this week as you were praying you experience the glory of Jesus. But when did you last perceive the infinite glory and greatness of who Jesus is to the point that you were moved by his transcendent beauty, by how awesome Jesus is? If it's been a while, go to the means of grace. Don't hold off for a miracle. Don't hold off for an extraordinary thing. Go to Jesus. As we said last week, the more we visit with Jesus, the better we trust him. In the same way, the more we visit with Jesus, the more regularly we see his glory. So read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and meditate on who Jesus is. Read the whole Bible and meditate on the character of God revealed in Jesus. Talk to other Christians you know and you trust about Jesus and flee to Jesus in prayer. Do these ordinary means of grace and you're going to see his glory. He's going to show himself to you. So spend more of your life in a pursuit of knowing Jesus and seeing Jesus and grabbing a hold of who he is. And then 
When you're seeing the glory of Jesus over and over and over, when he is faithfully revealing himself to you, you're going to see what's disordered in your life. And what then? Aim to value Jesus more. Aim to value Jesus above anything and everything else. So see his glory, delight in his glory, and then give yourself over to his glory above all else. When we have seen Jesus' glory, when we have perceived once again his purposes and his utter worth, if we receive that and trust that, the reordered desires and relationships will follow. I'll paint a picture of it and we'll wrap up. In my personal Bible reading lately, I've been very struck by Jesus's care, or by God's care for the poor, particularly in the Psalms and in the Old Testament prophets where I've been living for a little while. I've been seeing over and over and over again how much God values the lives of the poor and how he calls his people constantly to provide for their needs. And as I reflected on that, just in a doxological sense, in a worship sense, I realized how beautiful and good that is. Who is God? He, he's the creator of all things. He whom none of us would be really, I think he would be justified in saying, ah, they ruined my creation. I'm out of here. Just let them go to hell in a handbasket. He doesn't do that. Instead, he sticks with us, but then he cares for the people whom everyone else forgets, neglects, or rejects. He's the one, the creator who cares for widows that have been forgotten. He's the one who cares for orphans. He's the ones who cares for those left behind by war. It makes a lot of sense then when the Son of God comes to earth that he lives the life of a poor man. His character is utterly consistent. And utterly glorious. So I kept seeing this glory of God revealed over and over and over. And I started to ask the question, am I valuing the poor like he does? Do I love in the same way? I love how he loves the poor, but am I loving them in that way? Seeing his glory puts me under the microscope. What's my relationship to the poor in St. Tammany? Who and where? are the poor in St. Tammany? How do I need to love them as God loves them? And I'm not asking out of some kind of legalistic guilt, but out of delight in his character. I see that in him and I really, really like it. And I, I want it. I love that about God and I want that to be a part of me. And trust me, there are lots of other things that are out of whack in my life. And I see those increasingly as I'm exposed to his glory. But what about you? Jesus reveals his glory still today in ordinary and extraordinary ways. Have you seen him? Are you looking to see him? Are you participating in those ordinary means of grace so that you might see his glory and delight in him? The glory of Jesus, when when received in faith, exposes and then reorders our disordered lives. Every one of us has desires and relationships that are out of order. But as we see Jesus as he is, as we believe in him and delight in him, those desires and relationships will be put back into order mercifully in his own timing and according to his own grace. So my encouragement to you is this. Pursue Jesus. Aim to see his glory day in and day out. Seek to know Jesus as he is. Even ask him to reveal his glory to you because when the glory of Jesus is received in faith, it exposes our disordered lives but then reorders them as well. Let's pray. Jesus, 
You are worthy of all of our worship, of all of our delight, of all of our love. So we ask that you would show yourself to us. As you made your glory manifest at this wedding in Cana, and Mary and the disciples saw and believed and were reordered in their desires and relationships, we want the same thing. Father, I pray that not one person would walk out of this place today saying, here's one thing I've got to do to fix me, to fix my desires, to fix my relationships. But instead, may we each be filled with a deep desire just to see you, to know you. Because that is the source from which transformation comes. Seeing your glory, believing it. And then, as we are taken by delight in you, things are put back into order. Pray this in the name of Jesus.